Hello and welcome to the Hope City Church podcast. We're always so encouraged to know that God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please send a message to lifechange at hopecityonline.net. Now, let's prepare our hearts for a powerful message out of God's Word. We are obviously in the middle of a series called Goliath Must Fall, and we're actually wrapping up this series today. And I got to tell you, um, this has been one of the most powerful and helpful and encouraging series that we've done in a while for me. Now, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. And I'm just telling you that for me, God's done some work in me. He's done some things inside of me. He's shaped me in ways that maybe I didn't know I was ready to or want to be shaped, but God has taught me some things. And one of the things that we've discovered through the course of this series is that the giants that we face in our life, the Goliaths that we face in our life, the difficult circumstances, the the harsh realities of the things that we face, they're not as powerful as we often give them credit for. They're not as powerful as we often give them credit for. And all too often, we are far greater and far more equipped to face those giants than we even realize. But the problem is when we look at things through the lens of our own strength or our own um, history or our own ability, we look at these giants and we say, this is going to be the thing that kills me. This is going to be the thing that takes me out. But we've got to start looking at those things through the lens of not where we are or where we've come from, but whose we are and whose name we're facing these things in. And when we do that, we begin to realize that we're far more and far greater and far better equipped to face these things than we ever realized. And so this has been insanely encouraging for me, and I could not be more excited to spend some time unpacking something that we started to talk about last week this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. We've been in 1 Samuel throughout the course of this teaching series, and we're going to go there again. We're actually going to go to the same chapter that we were in last week. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 16, picking it up in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be on the screens for you. However, we would love for you to be able to follow along on your own so that you can take notes, underline, circle, do whatever it is that you want to do, and then go home and study this for yourself. We're convinced that following Jesus is not a Sunday morning activity. It's something that you do throughout the week, and so we want you studying God's Word for yourself. And so if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles available free of charge at our resource center as our gift to you this morning. But for the sake of today's service, the verses are going to be on the screens. You can also follow along on your smartphone or your tablet. First Samuel chapter 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 14. The scripture says this. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, King Saul, who was the king when David uh, faced Goliath and did basically everything that we've been talking about throughout the course of this series. Now, the next part of this verse is going to be really confusing if you let it, but I promise it's not as confusing as it seems on the front end. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, when people read that, they go, no, wait a second, time out. Why in the world is God sending an evil spirit on someone? I thought God was good and God was perfect and God was holy. Why would God ever send an evil spirit? What we're talking about here is in the concept of angels and demons, people who stayed allegiant to God and beings who did not stay allegiant to God. And the reality is God's still God and God's still on the throne and he can still do whatever he wants to do and command whatever he wants to command 
at his beck and call. Why? Because he's God. And so just because a spirit turned its back on God doesn't mean that God can't still use it to accomplish his purpose. And you know just as well as I do that God takes our mistakes, our shortcomings, our broken pieces, and our mess to accomplish his glory in the world, to do big things and beautiful things that we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Yeah, there's an evil spirit, and yeah, that evil spirit has departed from God, but it doesn't mean that God can't still use it for his purpose and his glory to accomplish what he wants in the world. And that's all this is talking about here. It's not that God is sending evil because God is evil. It's because God is using this evil spirit for his good and for his glory. It says, Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. Now, let me just pause for just a second and say this. Um, I don't like using the word liar throughout the course of this reading. And the reason for that is because we don't use the word liar in our culture on a regular basis. Whenever we think of liar, we think of someone not telling the truth. And so I don't want you to get distracted every time we say that. So for the sake of our conversation together this morning, we're just going to replace liar with guitar. Is everybody good with that? Now, here's what you need to know. A, A liar is not a guitar. They're two very different instruments, and I fully understand that. However, for the sake of our conversation today, let's just say guitar so I don't have to say liar over and over and over again because it's in the text over and over so Saul said to his attendants find someone who plays well and bring him to me verse 18 one of the servants answered I've seen a son of Jesse and this is the the verse that we parked on last week I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the guitar he's a brave man and a warrior he speaks well and he's a fine looking man and the Lord is with him now Let me pause for just a second and say there's a very important piece of this text that we've got to make sure that we highlight, that we circle, that we underline because it's going to affect the rest of our conversation together this morning. And that was when Saul sent out for someone to come and play the guitar for him, he said, I want you to bring me somebody who plays well. I don't want you to bring me a chump. I don't want you to bring me an amateur. I don't want you to bring me somebody who's just trying to figure it out. I don't want you to bring somebody who watched a DVD and now he's learned some chords and he thinks he's got it figured out. I want you to bring me somebody who's skilled, somebody who's good, somebody who plays well. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat. And sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much. And David, and a lot of people don't even know this, David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his guitar and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, really, really important to note and to hang on to the fact that David was really good at what he did. David was very skilled, was very good, and had spent a lot of time practicing and honing his craft and his ability to play this instrument. And when Saul sent for somebody to come and play to make him feel better, that's what he wanted it to do. He wanted it to make him feel better. He didn't want to focus on this guy's ability. He didn't want to focus on his shortcomings. He wanted somebody that could come in and own it and do it really, really well. And 
that's exactly what we see taking place in this particular story. David is someone who's extremely skilled at what he's done. David's someone who's done a great job at being able to accommodate Saul and what it was that he was asking for. And it kind of reminds me of the opportunity that people get when they go on shows like American Idol or The Voice. This wasn't like David was going to play for some random Joe Blow. David was going to play for someone of influence. David was going to go play for somebody who mattered. David was going to go play for somebody who could actually make big decisions that affected his life. And so this isn't like going and and auditioning for like the pre-judges that come around to every city in America. No, this is like going and, and being able to audition for the people that you see on TV, auditioning for the people who are in the chairs that they may or may not turn around, that you actually respect what it is that they say. David was getting the opportunity of a lifetime, but he wasn't granted that opportunity because he happened to have a guitar or because he watched a few DVDs or because he happened to know a few chords. The reason he was granted the opportunity of influence was because he was really, really Good, which brings up a point, and this is not the main point of our conversation together this morning, but it's something worth noting because it's something you need to pass along to your kids and to your grandkids, and it's this. Gifts rarely grow without the grind. Gifts rarely grow without the grind. God didn't just magically just give David, just sprinkle some, he can play guitar really good, and it came upon David, and all of a sudden he got a call from Saul, and it just so happened that Saul wanted him, of all people, to come and play. It didn't work that way. David had to work really hard, practice a lot, spend countless hours getting really good at his instrument so that when someone asked who can do this well, David's name was the name that came up. He was given this amazing gift and given an amazing spotlight to show off his gift. But don't think for a second that it didn't come without the grind. Lots of hard work, lots of effort, lots of time. Malcolm Gladwell writes in his book, Outliers, that it takes about 10,000 hours for someone to become masterful at a particular skill set. So if somebody wants to be a master pianist, they've got to spend 10,000 hours playing the piano. If somebody wants to be a masterful computer engineer, they've got to spend 10,000 cumulative hours sitting at a computer working on that becoming good at that if somebody wants to be a masterful um, baseball player or basketball player or golfer they have to spend an inordinate amount of time 10,000 hours honing that craft and becoming good at it and the reason that Saul chose David wasn't because he had a gift The reason that Saul chose David wasn't necessarily because he was anointed. The reason that Saul chose David was because David had spent the time grinding it out, working really, really hard, getting good at what he did. So when the opportunity arose, he was able to rise to the occasion. One of my favorite golfers is a guy by the name of Bubba Watson. Now, here's what you need to know. I'm not a big golf fan, and so I don't know a lot about golf. As a matter of fact, I don't know a ton about Bubba Watson. I just know that the last time that Bubba Watson won a major, the first place he went was to Waffle House after it was over. And anybody who's going to go to Waffle House late at night gets mad respect from me. And so I don't know a ton about Bubba Watson. I don't know where he's from. I don't know his history. I don't know his age. I don't know about his family. I don't know any of that stuff. All I know is Bubba Watson likes Waffle House. I like Waffle House. I'm not a huge golf fan, so if I've got to pick a golfer, I'm going to pick the guy that likes Waffle House. And so I'm a Bubba Watson fan because he likes Waffle House. However, most people like Bubba Watson because of his ability, because of his skill set. And apparently he's pretty good at the game of golf, right? Well, here's one of the things that I learned. An article was put out not too long ago that walked through Bubba Watson's 
practice schedule. And literally, this is a daily routine for him whenever he is not on um, a, a pro tournament. This is how he spends his off time. And I want you to look and listen to this because this is a guy who has an inordinate amount of money, an inordinate amount of fame, tons of success, doesn't really have to do any of this, but knows what's required to be in that spotlight again. Check this out. It says, every morning at 6 a.m., he does a weight workout for 90 minutes. I don't know what it's like to be up at 6 a.m., but I'm sure it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So every, six, every morning at 6 a.m., weight workout, 90 minutes. 7.30, breakfast. 8 o'clock, he's on the practice tee, and he's there for two hours. Can you imagine being a professional golfer and, and, and literally being on the tee for two hours? 10 o'clock, he's on the putting green. 10.30, he plays nine holes. 12 o'clock, lunch. 1 o'clock, he's back at the practice tee for two hours again in the afternoon. At 3 o'clock, he does his short game work. At 4 o'clock, he plays nine holes. At 5 o'clock, he goes back to the putting green. And at 5.30, he calls it a day and goes home. He is an amazing golfer. But the reason he's so good at golf is because of the work that he puts in when nobody's watching. It's the work that he puts in when there is no spotlight, when the cameras aren't turned on. Because he knows that to be ready when the cameras turn on, he has to spend a bunch of time working on it when they are off. One of the statements that I make around here all too often is the phrase, the best is yet to come. You guys will hear me say that. I sign my emails with that. I say the best is yet to come um, in videos. I say it from the stage because I really do believe that the best is yet to come here. Like I watch the way that God is moving and working in the hearts and lives of the people here. I watch the way that God's transforming people. I watch the way that we have to pull out chairs at our first service because there's literally not enough room to contain the number of people that are here. I literally sit in the conversations when we talk about not having enough kids space to accommodate the number of kids that are showing up. I hear about the way that God is moving and working in the midst of our people, in their work relationships, in their family relationships. And I know that if God has done all of this in the first 12 months, the best truly is yet to come. And I don't apologize for that. I believe in that with all my heart. But there is an underlying danger that comes along with making the statement, the best is yet to come. And that is that we miss out on the fact that the opportunity to get ready for what is to come is right here and right now. Sometimes we can get so focused on our one day moments we can get so focused on what's to come down the road we can get so focused on man i can't wait till god sets me up for to be able to face a giant like goliath and then everybody will be able to see my skill set i can't wait for that one day when god finally gives me the crown and lets me be king i can't wait for that one day when god allows me to show off what i've been working on we get so focused on one day that all too often we miss out on what god is trying to do in and through our lives right here right now and if we miss out on the opportunities right here right now we may never get to that one day and I think one of the things that we can learn from David is that if you want to be ready for the spotlight moment if you want to be ready for the big moments if you want to be ready for the miracle moments it takes a lot of work right here right now laying the groundwork and I think the reason that we all too often miss this the reason that we all too often don't focus on this 
is because in our culture, we live in a very fast-paced, right-here-right-now society, meaning when, when we watch television shows, they're edited just down to the important stuff, right? When, when we watch um, sporting events, all too often, we don't even watch what's going on at the sporting event. We just catch the highlights later, right? We, we live in a society that's very, very focused on just seeing those highlight, spotlight, big moments, and we never see the work that goes into making those things happen. One of my favorite shows that's on television right now um, is a show called Undateable Live. Has anybody seen this show, Undateable Live? It's a sitcom, but it's performed live. And throughout the show, they'll cut away from the set and show what's going on behind the scenes. Shows the camera crew, shows the people who are working, shows the people in the audience. And you see how much goes into making those minimal three-minute segment moments take place one of my favorite bands of all time is a band called U2 well they were one of my favorite bands until they without my permission put their last album on my iPhone and then made me listen to it when I didn't buy it and so that was a whole weird thing and we won't go into that that was not some of their best music ever but needless to say um, I'm a big fan of U2 and one of the best experiences a human being can have in their lifetime is to be able to go and see U2 live in concert it's one of the most amazing experiences to be able to witness live and in person but I read recently that U2 check this out this is crazy to me U2 on their last world tour it took 137 process that for just a second 137 full-time not part-time not quarter-time full-time men working 14 hours a day to make that concert, to make that world tour a reality. For those guys to be able to get up and play music for a couple of hours, just a few of them, and they've been doing it forever together, it took 137 full-time men working 14 hours a day. And all too often, we rarely see the work that it takes to create the wondrous experiences that we have in life. That's why I love a really, really... um, picturesque example of this that's found in the book of second kings the book of second kings israel has been split and there are uh, multiple kings in the nation of israel and these multiple kings in the nation of israel um, they are going through a drought and they're begging god they need god to relieve the drought that's going on in their land and so they go to a prophet and the prophet comes back and says okay i'm going to prophesy i'm going to tell you what the lord says and in second kings chapter 3 verse 16 this is what the lord says Make this valley full of ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. Now, for years, I've heard our development pastor, Doug Irvin, use the phrase, God, if you want me to dig ditches, I'll go dig ditches. And I never understood where he got that phrase from. I thought he could have picked something better, um, something more clear to our culture, to our society. But he said, God, if you want me to go dig ditches, I'll go dig ditches. And I didn't know where that came from. And I finally learned that that came from this passage found in in 2 Kings, where God says, if you want me to provide relief for the drought, here's what I need you to do. I need you to get out of my way and let me work no i need you to sit back and watch the wonder no check out this god-sized show from on high now here's what i need you to do to get ready i need you to go dig ditches and the next morning god provided the rain and when the rain came they were prepared and they were ready for the miracle that God was going to send. But if they weren't willing to do the work in the meantime, if they weren't willing to dig ditches, they weren't going to be ready for the miracle water that was coming the next day. 
All too often in our life, we sit back and we wait. Come on, God, do something. Do one of your God things. Do one of your miracle things. And God doesn't, and then we wonder why. And then we have to explain away why God didn't show up. Is it possible that maybe the reason that God doesn't provide miracle moments in your life is because you're not ready because you haven't dug the ditches? You haven't put forth the effort. You haven't put forth the work to be ready for what it is that he wants to do in you. Do you think God would have called David to face Goliath if David had not been willing to watch the sheep and protect the sheep and protect the sheep well? Do you think God would have called David to put his hand towards being the king of Israel if David couldn't even put his hand towards playing the guitar well? See, all too often in our life, we're waiting on God to give us our moment and God's waiting on us to step up where we are. In preparing for this talk this morning, I went back through and kind of re-examined my own journey in ministry and my own life. And I wanted to take just a second and kind of walk you through some of the things that God has done in me. I went into ministry um, right after high school. Um, when I was 18 years old, I moved from here uh, to Lynchburg, Virginia. I went to Liberty University. And while I was there the first semester, I tried my hand at waiting tables and I didn't like that. So two days later, I quit waiting tables. I tried my hand um, at being a, a coffee barista, um, but I burnt my hand way too much and was terrible at it and wasn't coordinated enough and couldn't do that little cool zigzag thing in the foam, and I never could master that, and so I quit um, being a barista, and so I realized that what I really wanted to do was to get to work doing the job that I was going to be doing that I was going to school for, and I wanted to see if there was an opportunity to do that on a part-time basis or somewhere where I could get plugged in and be doing ministry work um, vocationally. And so while I was in Lynchburg, Virginia, um, I got a job at a church. Unfortunately, it wasn't in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was an hour and 15 minutes north of Lynchburg in a little town called Lyndhurst, Virginia. Now, I use the term town um, very, very relatively because um, this is a little two-lane road and there's no stoplight. You know how people always say this is a one-stoplight town? This town didn't have a stoplight. Like, it was just a two-lane road and it was a community of houses. And if you missed the community of houses, like, you were through it. You were on the other side of Lindhurst already. And so Lindhurst um, was there and uh, it was right outside the big metropolis of Waynesville, Virginia. And anytime your big next door metropolis is Waynesville, you know you're out in the middle of nowhere. So Lindhurst was beside Waynesville, which was beside Charlottesville, which a lot of you have probably heard of, Charlottesville, Virginia. And it was an hour and 15 minutes out in the middle of nowhere at this little country church. And I went out there and I accepted a role of associate pastor of worship and students, associate pastor of worship and students. Now, here's what you need to know about accepting a role that is titled associate pastor of worship and students. That means anything that the pastor of preaching doesn't want to do, you are responsible for. And so I ended up putting my hand to all kinds of stuff that I had no clue how to do. They put me in charge of the choir. I was leading the choir. Now, let me be abundantly clear. I still to this day have no clue how to lead a choir. As a matter of fact, while I was there, they were like, hey, are we ever going to split into parts like soprano? alto tenor bass and I said I'm sure we'll get to that at some point and I just put it off until I was going to move on and let the next guy come in and so I was leading this choir Um, they had me speaking out at this student building and again I use student building very loosely um, because this was a picnic shelter that they put walls up for and I'm not even sure it had electricity before I got there but at least when they were hiring me and going through the hiring process they recognized they needed a student building and so they put electricity in there about halfway through my tenure there we finally got heating and air conditioning in that building but it was 
detached from the church and I would go out there and lead this group of like nine students and I would go and serve at this place doing things that I had no clue how to do like literally no clue how to do and I would drive an hour and 15 minutes one way to go and serve in this little country church and here's one of the things that I learned while I was out there even though it was a completely different experience from anything I had hoped for or dreamed for in ministry one of the things that I learned while I was there was there was a pastor and his name was Leroy Williams, and he loved advancing the gospel. He loved moving the kingdom of God forward, but he never wanted to do that at the expense of not taking care of his people along the way. And he loved those people like you would not believe. He was like a pastor's pastor. You know what I'm talking about? Like he was the ultimate care pastor. And so he would go around and visit these people and would passionately pursue pastoring these people like loved like got fulfillment out of loving on this little group of 100 people out in the middle of nowhere like just loved pastoring this little church and while I was there I learned a really really valuable lesson and while me and him have two very different personality types and I could never serve in that context or environment for an extended period of time the one thing that I took away from that is I learned to value people over progress every single time Because ultimately, as a pastor and as a church, we're in the people business. And if you don't value people, if all you value is expanding your platform, expanding your kingdom, expanding your brand, expanding your name, and you don't do it for the sake of loving people along the way because that's why you're there, then you're missing the point of pastoring. And so I learned to value people over progress. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not discounting or devaluing progress. Progress is really important. Expanding God's kingdom is insanely important. But remembering what expanding God's kingdom is, and that is reaching people for Jesus, is ultimately the best thing you could ever do. So while I was in Lindhurst, I learned to value people over progress. And then I realized when I came back the next semester that I really didn't want to drive an hour and 15 minutes to get to church every week. And it wasn't because I didn't love the pastor and it wasn't because I didn't love the church. As a matter of fact, I left on great terms from that church. It was just too far away. And so we started working at a church that was a little bit closer to home in Bedford, Virginia. And I was there and it was a much, much um, different experience. Still a very traditional church, but it was close to town. And so there was a lot of new people that were always showing up. Sunday school program that was there was growing. It was kind of busting at the seams and so things were moving things were shaking things were good and I'll never forget this as long as I live I had been there for three months and I got a call from our church administrator church secretary and she said you need to go to the hospital our lead pastor Vernon has been in an accident and so I rushed to the hospital and he had actually um, been working up on a roof and had fallen and fallen off the roof and when he fell off the roof he did some serious damage to his neck he broke his neck and broke several other bones and they had him in a medically induced coma what I did not realize was the fact that he was going to be in that medically induced coma for the next four months and when they brought him out of that it was going to be a year long process of him learning to walk and talk and do all this other stuff again and it was going to be a very difficult situation for this church and so the deacons called me into a meeting and this little, and I'll never forget this man. It was this little parlor that looked like the front room of a funeral home. And you say, well, why does that matter? It matters because I vividly remember it like it was yesterday. Like I'm sitting in this 1963 looking room that had velvet everything. And I'm sitting there and I'm surrounded by a group of men who all have gray and white hair. And they're all looking at me and they're saying, so what are we going to do? To which I reply with, sounds like we need to hire somebody to fill in for this guy. To which they replied, I thought we already did that. And they look back at me, right? 
Um, and I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I'm a, I, listen, I have led students, teenagers. I've, I've, I've led uh, music before. I can do that. But I, I'm not, like, I haven't preached in front of adults on a regular basis. That's not really my bag. I even threw out the word, that's not my calling, which for the record was not the right thing to say. But that's what I, I blamed God. And so I said, no, get me out of this. That's not my calling. And so anyway, I said, no, this is not my thing. I don't want to do this. And so they kind of walked me through the logistics of how small church finances work. And basically, this is what they said. They said, um, we're going to support his wife and their family while he's in the hospital so we can afford his salary and we can afford your salary. But if we have to hire somebody else to come in and speak for him, we can't afford all three salaries. And so it's either going to be somebody else or it's going to be you. And I said, sign me up. I'll do it. And um, so I started preaching. And it was there, man, that I got thrown into the fire of learning how to communicate and communicate to adults and communicate well and one of the things that God taught me during that season was to be ready to be ready in season and out of season for whatever it was that God would call me to and that when God calls you got to be ready to say yes not because you're ready but because you trust that he'll make you ready and that was one of the lessons that he showed me while I was at that church in Bedford, Virginia. Now, my wife and I always had a passion and a heart for the Charlotte region, and so we were kind of doing whatever it took to get back to the Charlotte area, and we ended up going um, to this church straight back from Virginia, going to this church in Indian Trail, and let me just give you a disclaimer on the front end. I was only there for nine months. It was the worst nine months of my life. It was hands down a horrific experience, and let me, again, be, be fair. It wasn't necessarily because of the pastor, and it wasn't necessarily because of the, the, the people or the structure. It was just the culture because when I came back to Charlotte, you got to know, I came back to Charlotte with a burning passion to reach unchurched people. That was one of the reasons that I had a passion for the Charlotte region. And I felt like at this church, we were so consumed in spending all of our time and walking on eggshells and pins and needles, trying not to offend the people who were already there, who already had a home in heaven, that we did it at the expense of reaching people who didn't already have a home in heaven. And I'm sitting here going, we are totally missing the boat on what it is that we're called to do. We spent all of our time and all of our energy having meetings about offending people or making people mad or we don't want to do this or we don't want to ruffle these feathers or they've been here a really long time and I just thought to myself, this is not what I signed up for and I never could have articulated it the way that I articulate it now. But one of the lessons that God birthed in me and that I learned while I was at that church in Indian Trail was I learned the value of focusing outward instead of inward. Because I saw the damage that it did when you focused inward all the time. And so I learned the value of keeping my eyes out towards people who don't know Jesus rather than always looking in at the people who already do. Now, it took a really, really rough and difficult experience for nine months for me to be able to articulate that lesson. And I already had that heart inside but the reality is I couldn't articulate it in that way and God taught me that lesson while I was at that church so I did whatever it took to get away from that church and so um, I resigned from there and I met with anybody in town who would meet with me and when I say anybody I met with everybody who I felt like was getting it done for God's kingdom I met with the guys at Elevation I met with the guys at Mosaic I met with the guys at, um, at Southbrook I met with churches all over town who I felt like were really getting it done for God's kingdom 
And it just so happened that I had an impromptu meeting with um, a couple of the guys from Next Level Church. And man, that was a really, really cool experience and opportunity because they hired me with no reason to hire me. Like that was a God thing. It was one of those God moments because they should not have hired me. Like looking back in retrospect, they should not have hired me. I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't know anything that I should have known to be able to be hired at this particular church. But they hired me because I could talk really well and I could talk really fast. I convinced them that they should. And so they hired me even though I had no clue what I was doing. They hired me to be a campus pastor of a new campus of their church over in the Ballantyne area. And when I tell you I had no clue what I was doing, like that's the vastest understatement that I could ever use. I had no idea what I was doing. It was totally just guess and check, pretending like I knew what I was doing and hoping nobody saw the truth behind the mask. But let me tell you how bad I was at this job. As a campus pastor, you're supposed to be the logistics guy. Like you're supposed to know what it takes, particularly in a portable campus of how we set up, how we tear down, what the systems are, who the volunteers are. And we didn't go and even walk in the doors of the school that we were going to be meeting in until the Saturday night before the Sunday morning that we started. And when we got out of the vehicles and we all started unpacking all the stuff that we asked people to bring, there was no system, there was no organization, there was no carts, there was no anything. And everybody's looking at me like, what are we supposed to do? And I'm looking at them like, you're the adults, I figured you would figure it out. And like, for the first time in my life, I realized I was the one in charge. And so I'm freaking out, I'm calling in church on wheels. Can you get us carts? When do you need carts? Uh, tonight? And they're like, no, we can't do that. And so like I realized I was in way over my head. And after I realized I was in way over my head, I learned something. And it was something that the guys at Next Level taught me that I'll never be able to repay them for. And that is the value of team. That I'm not carrying the weight of this thing on my shoulders. That I have to learn to ask for help. That I have to learn to tell other people I don't have it all together and I need your expertise in this area. I learned the value of leading well while serving a team of people. And then when I left Next Level, which was an incredible experience, was there for six years of my life. When I left Next Level, I ended up coming on staff at what was High Rock Church. And I started serving at the Salisbury West Campus of High Rock Church. And I started working in close proximity with a guy who's the lead pastor of High Rock Church. His name was Ray Johnson. And people can say what they want about Ray. And people have a lot of questions in regards to some of his decisions and leadership styles along the way. But one of the things that I can tell you about Ray is he would always, always, always go First. And many people have heard me tell these stories um, before. But the reality is Ray would never point and tell you to do. He would always go and do and show you how and, and do it first and then ask you to come alongside him and join him. Now, he would very quickly bail and go do something else, but he would always show you how to do it first, right? And, and I'll never forget that because here's the lead pastor of a three to 4,000 person mega church that has eight campuses. And he's showing up to this facility before we launch at 10 o'clock at night with a truck full of toilets and tile to install them himself. Man, I'll never forget that as long as I live, that he always went first. And I learned a lesson from him. And that lesson was leaders lead. They don't point. Leaders go first. I've been through a lot of ministry experiences and in every one of those experiences, I was doing things that felt completely outside the realm of what I felt like I was called to do. 
When I was in Virginia, I was like, this can't be the landing place for me. When I was in Indian Trail, I was like, I know this isn't the landing place for me. When I was at Next Level, it was great and it was a cool opportunity, but I knew that God had more for me. When I was installing toilets, by the way, if the toilets leak, it's my fault. I installed it. Um, it when I was installing toilets here at this campus, I'm sitting here thinking, this is not really my bag. Every time along the way, I'm thinking, this is not what God signed me up to this gig for. But here's what I've learned now that I am doing what I know he called me to do. Now that I am doing what I know he signed me up for. And just so there's clarity and so there's no question, um, this is exactly where God wants me. And I don't think he's changing his mind. And until he audibly tells me I need to go somewhere else, I will be the pastor of Hope City Church. Like, I love this church. I love these people. I love what God is doing here. And I'm excited to plant my roots here and to be here until I'm really, really gray-headed. And so I'm really, really excited about what God is doing here. But now that I'm finally doing what I feel like God's called me to do, here's the lesson that I've learned. I would suck at it. I would be terrible at it had I not learned the lessons that I learned along the way. I couldn't lead here well if I hadn't been thrown in the fire in Bedford, Virginia to preach. I wouldn't be a great staff leader if I hadn't watched other people lead staff well. I wouldn't focus on the people that God's calling us to lead and that God is, is, is bringing our way if I hadn't watched another pastor who put people over progress. I couldn't do what I do now well and I wouldn't be ready for this miracle that we call Hope City Church if I wasn't willing to dig ditches along the way. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. We need to stop waiting for God and start working with God. We need to stop waiting for God. God, one day when I get to pastor my own church. God, one day when I get to run my own business. God, one day when I retire. God, one day when, when, when my kids get older. God, one day when my finances finally get straightened out. God, one day, God, one day I'll do this, this, and this. And God's going, one day is never going to come unless you start digging ditches right now. Because the place that I've put here before you isn't by accident. You're here where I've placed you for a reason. God didn't say, if you get the notion, go ahead and dig some ditches. God said, this is my will for you. Thus saith the Lord. Dig some ditches because I got a miracle coming and you're not going to be ready unless you start digging. In your life and in my life, if we don't start working with what God has already given us and we keep waiting for God to show up on our behalf, we'll always be waiting you think David would have been able to slay Goliath if he hadn't been willing to protect the sheep and slay bears you think David would have had an intimate relationship with the king who was in charge of everything which gave him the platform to go and kill Goliath if he hadn't been willing to get really good at playing guitar? Do you think God would have poured out miracle water on the land of Israel if the people wouldn't have been willing to roll up their sleeves and dig ditches? Here's my question for you. 
Are you willing to start digging right where you are? Or are you waiting on God's miracle water to show up? Because if you are, and you haven't been digging along the way, you won't be ready. The series has been called Goliath Must Fall. Because the Goliaths we face in our life are things like uncertainty and fear and doubt and bitterness and resentment and anger and relationship struggles and financial struggles and physical struggles. And you won't be ready to overcome those giants when they come. If you aren't leaning into the preparation God has for you for those giants right now. So I want you to ask the question. What is it that God wants me to do right here, right now, where I am to be faithful for him to do a miracle in my life? And then I want you to be willing to do it. Those are two really different things. It's one thing to know what we're supposed to do. It's a whole different thing to dig in. It's one thing to know I'm supposed to dig a ditch. It's another thing to pick up a shovel and start digging. What is it God wants you to do to be faithful right where you are so you can be ready for your one day? And I want you to leave this place and go do it because Goliath must fall. And the only way that happens is if we're faithful right now. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for what we see in the life of David. Thank you for what we learn from his example. God, my prayer for our church is that we would be a church filled with ditch diggers. That we would be people who would intentionally sink our teeth in right where we are. Even if it's not where we want to be. In order for you to prepare us for that one day. God, give us the patience to do what we know that we're called to do right now, even though it may not be what we want to do right now. Give us the wisdom to discern what that is and give us the boldness to step up when you call so that we're ready. God, we love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.